0: My lovely, how are you?
1: I'm wonderful. I, by the time this comes out, will have officially turned one year older, so. Yay! That's always fun at this point in life. Absolutely. How about you? How are you doing? I'm doing great.
0: I went to your favorite place in the whole wide world, the Alamo Draft House.
1: Yes, okay, thank you. You somehow texted that to me and I blanked and I was like, is she talking about the Lego store? Like, what's my favorite place in the whole world? <laughs> No, that makes more sense. I was like, I haven't even been to the Lego store here. No. What did you see? I saw
0: the Indiana Jones movie.
1: How was that?
0: It's great. People's complaints about it are not founded.
1: Okay, good. Yeah, I did not care for the last one, but I love obviously the first three. So no one did. I know it's we just pretend it didn't happen.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like they re- it's referenced because they're not doing like what everyone else did. Of like, we live in a timeline where that didn't happen. So like two plot points in it that you don't have to remember anything except who's in it are referenced, but that's it. Like a couple times. Okay. But I thought it was a great conclusion to the, the franchise or to the series. Phoebe Waller bridge is fantastic in it. Harrison Ford is 80 years old. and He can fucking get it. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> My God. He's great. The movie's great. Apparently people had issues with the third act, um, which is dumb because they set it up in the first scene and not like a subtle like succession setup. Like it's, it's very overtly stated repeatedly from the first scene. This thing does this thing. And then apparently when it did the thing, people were upset um, because I think they've never seen an Indiana Jones movie because it is uh, not really based in reality, the third act in any of them. Yeah. I thought it was fucking great. I really enjoyed it. And yes, it's two and a half hours long, um, which what happened to the 90 minute movie? I really miss those. Those are gone. But it moves. Like, I didn't, I didn't feel the two and a half hours. I thought it was great. Highly recommend.
1: Amazing. All right. I have to see that because, you know, I'm a huge Indiana Jones fan. Yes. Who isn't? Correct. That's the correct response. I know. And
0: then I saw some amazing theater this week. I saw a show called Wet Brain that I've just never seen anything like it. What was the premise of this? So apparently the term itself wasn't discussed in the play, but the whole play is kind of about it. Uh, apparently Wet Brain is a term for when you basically drink yourself to the point that you have holes in your brain that you've created.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh my God.
0: Yep. And you kind of become incontinent and psychotic and and hallucinate things and kind of become like a like a living zombie where you're just kind of like the shell of a human being who can't really speak and is like... Throwing up on yourself and pissing on yourself, and
1: this is horrible. Yeah, so it's like a fun romp at the theater. Amazing, it was incredible. And like I
0: was watching it, I was like, "Fuck, Amy would have loved this show." So it was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. And I there, there's a there's this one professor, a theater professor, who says something to the effect of, "Theater shouldn't move you; it should stop you in your tracks."
1: Oh, I love that.
0: Yeah, and this show definitely did that. And there's this. Like there's this one scene that for anyone who saw it knows exactly it's the scene. And it just, even though it's like not, it's a dark comedy, it's very much like a horror play.
1: It kind of sounds like it. Yeah.
0: It's horrifying, but it's also, and there's this one scene that when you see it, like the, just the visuals of it, you're so like taken aback that it's kind of like seared into my, my memory and my brain because of. I've just never seen anything like it. And then for funsies, <laughs> so I don't know if you know this, I competed in
1: speech and debate in high school. Uh, that does not surprise me in any way, shape, or form, but I did not know this.
0: Yeah. So in speech and debate, there's like the debate and the speech part. The speech part is just doing acting scenes. Okay. And debate is, you know, the different debate topics and whatnot. So I so I did speech and I did it with Christina and we're like state champions, so that was how I spent every weekend of my senior year: was uh, getting up early and <laughs> doing uh, debate competitions. I am wildly impressed right now. You know, I don't, I don't know if that's entirely necessary, but sure. Thank, <laughs> thank
1: you. I mean, I was waking up early to watch Mystery Science Theater three thousand in high school. That's that was it.
0: No, I was like not at home on the weekend. I was home on Sunday. The rest of my senior year was at school. It was the rehearsing. Vita, which I was the lead in, or doing speech and debate. So you, like, you know, compete against different schools and, and whatnot. And one of the people I used to compete against, Frankie Alvarez, has kind of, like, gone on to be a, a big deal. And he, I guess, is most notably known for being in the HBO series Looking from, like, 10 years ago. Okay. So I didn't know anything about the show, and, and I go to see it, and he's in it. And I was like, oh, shit. And I haven't seen him since he saw me in a show, like, years ago, because he— his Juilliard classmate was in in the show with me, and then so I was like, "Oh shit, it's Frankie!" And the show was wonderful. And I, I put a post on a, like a story on, on Instagram about it, and I tagged all of the actors in the show to just congratulate them on their incredible work because it's a it was a play, so it's like four four or five people. And then one of the, the woman who plays his sister messages me because I, I, I tagged Frankie as my speech and debate rival. Cause there was like three schools that were like the top schools in speech debate. Mine was one of them. And so it was his, and we competed in the same category. So then the woman who plays a sister messages me and goes, Frankie was my speech debate rival. And I was like, wait, where'd you go to school? And she's also from Miami. And like we competed in the same category. So we also competed against each other. And it was just like, I've competed against half of these people in this play.
1: <laughs> I love that. That's so random. It was very random and it was very fun. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. There you go. It
0: was just, it was great to like, um, just uh, get into like a little fun, little memory lane speech and debate, speech and debate moment. But it was just really, it was a really cool show. And then I saw a show last night by one of my favorite playwrights currently. And it was like a magic show. Ooh, It was great. It was so great. So I've just spent uh, the last few days consuming a lot of art, which has been very cool. A lot of good art, which uh, doesn't always happen.
1: I love that so much. Yeah, That makes what I went to this week seem so ridiculous in comparison. It's like the complete opposite end of the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I'm like blushing actually now. I'm going to have to explain this. Explain away. I went to something called Kaiju Big Battle, which is basically a bunch of people dressing up like ridiculous creatures, such as Burger Bear, who's half burger, half bear.
0: I kind of caught that, not just a clever name.
1: (laughs) There was a giant can of soup, like Santa Claus was involved at one point, and they're all in a big wrestling ring and they battle it out. And I don't know if you know, but kaiju are like giant monsters from Japan. So that's what Godzilla technically is, is a kaiju. Uh-huh. So it, they had like little buildings all around the ring and would smash them and like throw them at each other and did like all the wrestling moves. I mean, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. It sounds amazing. It was so much fun, honestly. So yeah, I had the best time. It was not what I was expecting at all. I didn't look up anything before I went and it was really ridiculous and really entertaining.
0: It sounds like it. I'm very here for it though.
1: Yes. Apparently they come back in October and I might have to buy tickets to go again because it was a fucking riot. I really can't get over it. That sounds great. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. (gasps) Also, another highlight from my week, which I'm sending you a picture of, is my dad's birthday present to me came early. Does the man know me or does the man know me?
0: Oh my goodness. I can't wait.
1: It's so ridiculous. I feel like the picture isn't even really going to do it justice. I was like, I'm going to send you a couple though. <laughs> so it's made entirely out of like nuts and bolts and there's a bite chain involved and it's just a lot of hardware and fasteners. Yes. Yes. It is a sculpture of the xenomorph from Alien and it's fucking amazing. It's great. Did I almost poke my eye out with the tail? Yes. Already.
0: The tail is aggressive.
1: Oh yeah. It's like an arrowhead at the end. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Oh, it's fantastic. I was really excited. (laughs) Tom nailed it. So yeah, that's been my big, exciting week. I have been looking forward to hearing what your paranormal story is. Because sometimes, I don't get my hopes up, but sometimes you will pick one, especially for me, on my birthday week. Unfortunately, that was not this time. Okay. No, like no pressure. (laughs) How dare you, Monique? How dare you not give me an alien story for my birthday? (laughs) No, I love you so much. And I'm so excited to hear the story anyway.
0: I love you so much. Before we get into that, we do have some correspondence from Queen Grace.
1: <gasps> Nail time. I love it.
0: Nail time. Greetings, travelers. I need to talk to some crime scene people about DNA evidence underwater, which I think was in reference to the, the skin suit. Story. Story. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The one that uh, everyone was really traumatized by, understandably. Yes. But in the meantime, let me address your questions about the geography and capacity of a morgue. I, because having to, because remember, there's a whole thing with the, the freezer. And I was like, what the fuck? I, I'm not understanding how this looks like. Because apparently TV and film has lied to us. <gasps> All that's bullshit.
1: How dare they?
0: Yeah. Apparently it's just full on bullshit. I've never seen a morgue that had that big bank of doors in the wall like you see on television and in
1: movies. What? Dude. Mind already blown. Like that is literally all I picture. Right. Because it's in literally every fucking thing. Yes. I also don't know why they collectively,
0: like the Hollywood system collectively got together and it's like, well, this is just how we're going to portray morgues forever. Yeah. And I was like, cool. Like there was no pushback on that. Because I also have a regular at the bar who's wildly cool. Hey, Amelia. And their spouse, Lilis, what's up? And Amelia, who's a New York City medical examiner, was like, yeah, no, that's not, that's not what they look like. Damn. Also, a random PSA from Amelia, don't do cocaine because she says that she hasn't seen any of it not laced with fentanyl (gasps) in years. Okay. She's like, all of it's laced with fentanyl. It's going to fucking kill you. And uh, she's like, I haven't seen a pure cocaine death in years.
1: Wow. So
0: PSA. Okay. Don't do drugs. Words to live by. Yeah. Back to our correspondence from Queen Grace. As a rule, morgues need to have more space than that kind of arrangement allows So the morgues that I have experience with at the medical examiner's office are usually big industrial refrigerator doors with an entire room that is kept at the appropriate temperature. Inside the morgue, there's usually a whole assortment of wheeled tables that the dead are placed on. Additionally, at my job, the morgue has a lift machine and racks like giant metal shelves. The rack is something like six bodies wide and five bodies tall. There's another smaller door inside of the morgue, and that is the deep freeze room. It's where you put people that are unidentified and are likely going to be there for a while. This is the arrangement for metropolitan area. When it comes to funeral homes or smaller jurisdictions, it's kind of anything goes. I've seen some coolers that are basically just a glorified closet. They can only hold four bodies. I've also seen some that are essentially just a freezer chest. (gasps) Girl.
1: Oh my God. That's what I was picturing. But I was like, no, you have it wrong. There's no way that's the situation. Oh my God.
0: I just don't want to die ever, basically. <laughs> it's kind of where all of this conversation, I don't want to die, now I don't want to deal with this, which I guess if I'm dead, I'm not dealing with it. It depends on the requirements of the establishment. Interestingly, two of the larger hospitals in my area, the morgue accounts to little more than a meat locker and only has a capacity for four or five bodies at most. So hearing that a hospital, particularly an older one, basically has a glorified cooler with a stack of shelves, doesn't surprise me. In my area, there's one hospital that doesn't have a morgue at all. So every time someone dies there, they lose their shit and call the medical examiner's office and beg us to come and get the body. And contrary to popular belief, people don't go to the county morgue just because they're dead. If that person died at the hospital of natural causes, their disposition is the hospital's problem. And so whether this hospital calls us and they're like, come get the body, come get the body. And we're like, um, no, they freak out and start asking us what they're supposed to do. And we're like, that sounds like a question for the hospital administrators. Have a good day, sir. It's a problem that has literally spent over a decade and they still don't have a morgue and they still don't know what to do with a dead body that has been claimed by a family member. The American medical system at work, folks. All of that's horrifying, and I hate everything about it.
1: Oh, my God. I am so disturbed by this information, and I feel so betrayed by the— What the fuck, Hollywood? You lied to me? Yeah, television and movie industry. How dare you? All of them. Yeah. I just don't know how they all just decided, like, this is just what we're going to show people. I'm blown away by this information. Literally, same. (laughs) My brain is broken a little bit, I think. Like, I actually, I have to, like, revise my whole worldview now or something. I don't know. because yeah,
0: all of them, they got the doors, they slide yes. out the thing. They're like, no, nah, girl, we don't got, got room for that shit. Every fucking show.
1: Every single thing. <sighs> That's very disturbing. Very upsetting. Thank you so much, Grace, for that. Thank you. I needed that information. I don't know that I needed it. <laughs> I didn't need it. It's just wildly upsetting. She got us out of the matrix. Like now we know the truth. Now we know. Yes. We took the red pill. Thank you.
0: <sighs> Which is funny. There's a little, there's a mini matrix psychic sister moment in my story. PT dubs.
1: Yes. <laughs> yes. I love that. <laughs> I'm never upset about a psychic sister moment.
0: I mean, me neither, obviously. But with that, that horrifying correspondence. I can get right into my story. Yay! So I've been very in my feels the last several days. and just been very grateful that I live in New York and that I just have access to go see works of art and theater whenever I want uh, when I'm not working, which is all of the time. So to kind of honor that, I am going to be covering the Belasco Theater in New York City.
1: (gasps) Love a haunted theater. They're always haunted as fuck.
0: I know, girl. We're going to get into it. So, uh, sources, broadwayworld.com, playbill.com, talkofnewyork.com <laughs> is how it's spelled, which is fantastic.
1: I love that so much. That's like the forget about it sign when you go into <laughs> Brooklyn. I'm yeah.
0: dying. Uh. It's great. ny.curbs.com, blog.mcny.com, wikipedia.com, backstage.com, lamar.edu, and the... Up Close Broadway Walking Tours Haunted Broadway Book. And before you get really excited that I read a book for you, it's like 30 pages. It's <laughs> it's, not, it's not an impressive Amy situation where she's like, I read a fucking novella for you. I don't know.
1: It usually turns out to be Amy starts reading a book, gets 90% <laughs> into it, and then is like, oh, I, I don't actually have the time to finish this, and I need to actually write my story. That's
0: wildly impressive. That's way more than I do. Yeah. So, those who work in the theater, actors and crew members alike, are a superstitious bunch. There are various known but unspoken quote-unquote rules all productions must abide by to ensure a successful run. For instance, saying Macbeth in a theater is a strict no-no. As the superstition goes, uttering the tragic Shakespearean character's name will curse a production. Some believe that Shakespeare gave his three witch characters in the opening scene actual spell incarnations for lines. Allegedly, as retaliation, a coven of actual witches cursed the play. It has been said that the actor playing Lady Macbeth tragically died on opening night in 1606 and that Shakespeare himself had to step up to fill in the role. Dueling productions of Macbeth in New York in 1849 caused the Great Astor Place Riot. What? Yeah, basically like the guy who was like, oh, I'm like the best British actor and the guy who was like, I'm the best American actor, both played Macbeth like blocks away from each other. And then people just couldn't handle it. And they're like, ah, and they freak the fuck out. The
1: good old days when we were rioting over plays, girl,
0: you know, <laughs> over, over fucking my which I've done repeatedly. And it's like, it's not that serious guys, but uh, which left at least 25 people dead and hundreds injured. What the fuck? Girl, this is what the fuck I'm talking about. This is wild. Gross overreaction.
1: <laughs> it's a play guys. Fucking relax.
0: I girl. When I looked this up, I was like, nah. And I was like, oh yeah, this is a thing. It's fucking crazy. Other productions have been plagued with accidents, including actors falling off the stage and mysterious deaths. In a production at the Old Vic in 1937, Laurence Olivier narrowly missed being struck by a falling stage weight while starring in the production of The Bard's Tale. These days, most actors only refer to Shakespeare's famous tragedy as the Scottish play, so as to not tempt the witches. So I didn't know about this next one, but apparently you aren't supposed to whistle in a theater either, as that too is considered bad luck. What? Well, so we'll get into it. This superstition started in the middle of the 1600s when theatrical scenery began to fly. Do you know what that means? No. Okay, cool. Because this is going to be me very much in like my world that I know is not your world at all. Explain like I'm five.
1: I definitely don't know what any of this is.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So in theaters, in a lot of theaters, above the stage, there's a lot of space where they basically have backdrops that they quote-unquote fly in and out. They like lower them for the stage and then raise them. And like they're a lot, you know, they'll have like 150 pieces just hang out up there to fly in and out. So that's what that's referred to. And then sometimes like then also the wings, which are the sides of the theater, they'll have like shit waiting there to just come in and out on on the stage.
1: Like roll in and out or whatever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. So that's referred to as flying when you bring in a, a set piece from above the the theater. You fly it in or fly it out. So in the middle of the 1600s, when theatrical scenery began to fly, sailors who had extensive knowledge of ropes, rigging knots were often hired backstage as run crew. Like on a ship, the sailors would communicate with each other through whistles to bring a backdrop in or out. Consequently, a whistling actor on stage could start a scene change early, or get knocked out from incoming scenery. Jesus! (laughs) Girl, that's wild. There's, of course, break a leg, a phrase that was first mentioned in print in 1921 in a magazine that explained that to avoid jinxing a show, you wished a performer bad luck instead of good luck. There are various theories as to the origins of this particular phrase. Many believe it stems from the vaudeville circuit of the early 1900s. Each vaudeville bill would feature nine acts, but they would overbook the show to have acts on deck in case there was a last minute emergency and an act was needed to fill a spot. The black masking curtains that frame the stage are known as legs. So if your fellow stage performer said break a leg, what they were saying to you was they were wishing that you would make it onto the stage, perform, and most importantly, get paid. Because the on-call acts wouldn't get paid unless they performed. So fun little theater fact.
1: That is fascinating i love like the origins of phrases and i had no idea yeah because you're like what the fuck yeah i genuinely assumed you were just wishing them to break their leg i read a thing too that
0: not super dissimilar that i guess in elizabethan times that when the players would you know they people would throw coins at them during their bows and they would have to like kneel to get it so they would break their leg, like the, the line of their leg is also a thing, but basically it seems like getting paid is hope you get paid, (laughs) which I mean, all of us, that's, that's my Christmas wish for everyone. Then there is the ghost light. At the end of the evening, the last person in the theater must leave a single light bulb on a skinny post called a ghost light in the middle of the stage overnight, all night long. In the early 1800s, when gas lamps were installed in theaters, a lone gas lamp was left burning overnight to prevent buildup in the gas lines because if built-up gas was not released, it could explode, which apparently happened all of the time. Damn. Yeah, girl. Many theaters burned down due to gas explosions throughout the 1800s. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the first electric light bulb And in 1881, the Savoy Theater in London became the first fully electrically lit theater in the world. The U.S. soon followed, but even after gas lamps were replaced with electric bulbs, the tradition of placing a single lit light on the center of the stage continued, to the point that actors' equity, the theater acting union, requires that there be some light on stage at all times." While, of course, the light serves a practical purpose as the backstage can be dangerously cluttered with scenery, props, costumes, and the like, it's commonly believed that this light is positioned at the center of the stage to either ward off the theater ghosts or appease them, giving them light to perform during the evening.
1: That is beautiful, actually. I really like that. Right? And I was like, I would
0: kind of love that. Yeah. I would like... I'd be into spending eternity that way. Yeah. Just being at a theater, being like, these hoes are gone and now it's my turn to fucking act. (laughs) I'm a star. I love it. I'm a star, baby. Every theater is believed to be haunted and it looks like no theater is more haunted on the Great White Way than the Belasco Theater. Located at 111 West 44th Street between 6th and 7th Avenue in the theater district of Midtown Manhattan, the Belasco Theater was originally known as the Stuyvesant Theater. The building was designed by architect George Keister. The building's facade features red brick with limestone trim and a crowning pediment, dental cornice moldings, and fluted pilasters, all made to evoke a temple. The building's interior is equally impressive. The theater features rich woodwork and seats 1,016 patrons across its three levels, a ground-level orchestra and two overhanging balconies with boxes at the second balcony level. The vestibule and doors were designed by John Rapp, who was considered to be one of the finest theater designers of his day. Given that Charles Louis Tiffany was a personal friend of the producer, the theater is filled with original, colorful Tiffany designs. In addition to the Tiffany light fixtures and ceiling panels, the auditorium features 18 murals by the American Ashcan School artist Everett Shin. Construction of the theater cost $750,000 at the time, which the closest number I can get for inflation, because the theater was built in 1907, is 1913, which would make it $23 million today. Damn. Girl. Both the facade and interior of the theater are New York City landmarks. Developed by Meyer R. Bimberg and operated by David Belasco, the Stuyvesant Theater opened its doors on October 16th, 1907, making it the sixth oldest theater on Broadway. On September 3rd, 1910, David Belasco renamed the Stuyvesant Theater after himself when he lost control of the previous Belasco Theater on 42nd Street, which is now the new Victory Theater. Now, you might be like, who the fuck is this dude that could just rename a theater after himself? and not be dead to do it, because that's usually how that goes. Well, let's get into the man, the myth, the legend, David Belasco. David Belasco was born on July 25th, 1853 in San Francisco, California. He was a theatrical producer, actor, manager, director, playwright, jack-of-all-trades, and looks like master of them all. During his long creative career, which stretched from 1884 to 1930, Belasco either wrote, directed, or produced more than a hundred Broadway plays. Among those, Belasco was the first writer to adapt the short story Madame Butterfly for the stage, four years before Puccini adapted it into his famous opera in 1904. Belasco launched the careers of dozens of notable performers, many of whom went on to work in films, including Mary Pickford and Barbara Stanwyck. In addition to all of his impressive titles, David Belasco was a visionary who changed the way theater is performed and produced. He was the pioneer of the American little theater movement, which advocated that dramatic experience depended on close contact between the actors and the audience. While the Belasco Theater was smaller than its palatial predecessors, the theater space was designed to offer an equally dramatic yet more personal setting, saying that he wanted his theater to be akin to the intimate experience one has in their own living room. Belasco brought a new standard of naturalism to the American stage, He demanded a natural acting style, and to complement that, he developed stage settings with authentic lighting effects to enhance his plays. Belasco became one of the first directors to 86 the use of traditional footlights for lights concealed below floor level, which were therefore hidden from the audience. Belasco, with his lighting assistant, invented what is believed to be the first spotlight on Broadway. He used his specially made thousand-watt lamp for quote-unquote follow spots, to further create realism. He was the only director on Broadway to have a spotlight for the first two years after its invention. He often tailored his lighting configurations to complement the complexions and hair color of his actors and equipped the dressing rooms of his theaters with several different color lamps so actors could see how their makeup looked under different lighting. Velasco was the first to develop modern stage lighting. He used colored lights via motorized color-changing wheels to evoke mood and settings. The shows he produced utilized set and lighting design in ways that had never been done before. For his 1905 production of The Girl of the Golden West, which was written, produced, and directed by Belasco, the play opened with the lighting effect of a spectacular color-changing sunset, the first of its kind that lasted five minutes before any dialogue had been spoken, which I can only imagine being in the audience. And like, you're like, what the fuck? It's the sunset. Inside, yeah,
1: unprecedented, yeah, crazy. Which I think is very cool. I'm very impressed by this man. He's legit. He's not fucking around.
0: No, I knew none of this, and I've I've gone to the Belasco so many fucking times. I knew nothing about him, and I do. In addition to staging performances, the theater became Belasco's laboratory to test out new conventions and technologies. Considered a quote unquote man of the century, he made sure that his theater was outfitted with the most current innovations. He had the Stuyvesant Theater specifically constructed with vast amounts of fly and wing space, which we already discussed what those are. The theater was equipped with an elevator stage as well as sophisticated lighting and hydraulic systems. The basement of the Stuyvesant contained a working machine shop and special effects studio where Belasco and his team experimented with lighting and other special effects. Many of the innovations developed in the Belasco shop were sold to other producers. His lighting system, which was the first of his kind, was so highly regarded that it was replicated by theaters worldwide and has gone on to inspire generations of theater lighting designers. Ever striving for realism, it is said that Belasco put appropriate scents in the ventilation system of the theaters to set certain scenes. A few shows at the Belasco featured actors cooking real food on stage so that the smell would waft over the audience, creating an immersive effect. His highly detailed sets sometimes spilled out into the audience area. One show had a fully functioning laundromat on stage. What? Girl, this guy is not fucking around. This is ridiculous. And this is like 1905 that he's fucking doing this. This isn't now. Like, it's like, what the fuck? It's, this is
1: wildly impressive. Yes. I can't imagine how mind blowing going to one of these shows would be. Can you? I know. It's like you've never seen anything. Like we're kind of jaded now. We've seen so much shit, but like for sure, insane.
0: I mean, I even thinking about Wet Brain, which I've never seen anything like it. And it's 2023, and like there, like the visuals and just how they did everything. I've just never, ever, ever seen anything like it. And it was so cool, and I will remember it for the rest of my fucking life. So I can only imagine, like this shit. You're like, what the. There's a laundromat on stage? Yeah. And it's and they're just doing laundry and it's working? What the fuck? Girl. And another had the most realistic rain effect ever seen on Broadway at the time. For yet another production, Belasco had his carpenters rent a room at a brothel and then literally carve that room out of the building and place it on the stage to create a truthful setting.
1: What? Girl.
0: Belasco's in it for real
1: world, not for play play. Clearly. He is not fucking around. He is authentic to the extreme and I love it. AF. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Today, David Belasco is regarded as, quote, one of the first significant directorial figures in the history of the American theater. End quote. Belasco was such a big deal that he even got a shout out in the F. Scott Fitzgerald classic, The Great Gatsby. Oh, damn. Girl, I know. Like, everyone's like, oh, he's a fucking big deal. Yeah. I
1: was like, obviously.
0: Obviously. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so that's why Homeboy was able to rename the theater after himself uh, three years after, like, doing producing shit in it.
1: He was like, yeah, hi, have you seen my resume? Thanks. We're actually, we're changing the name. Hi, um, have we met? Yeah. I'm... Fuck
0: Uh <laughs> No, I am that bitch. Thank you. So as... You can probably tell he lived and breathed the theater. And like any person so invested in their craft, Velasco made sure that he was never too far from the action. So 1909, he had a 10-room duplex penthouse apartment built for him directly above the theater that operated as both living quarters and working space.
1: I respect the fuck out of this move. I'm not going to lie.
0: Dude. Yeah. So before I get into the apartment, I need to bring up this weird quirk that Belasco had because even though he was Jewish, David Belasco dressed as a clergyman wearing a cassock, which is a priest robe and a white collar. And he wore this every day. What? I have no idea why. That seems sacrilegious or something. It's something. He definitely has some sort of religious Christian kink. That's a vibe. Do you
1: boo? Whatever Whatever floats your boat, man. Girl, if everyone's consenting, cool. But it's a choice, you know? Yeah. Did he make people call him father? How, do, how
0: far did this go? Oh, I don't know. But I think it's, it might be a, a th- It might be. Safe to assume. Yeah. We'll get into it. So, uh, So this attire eventually earned him the moniker of the Bishop of Broadway. And his religious fascination spilled over into his 10-room home. You could see the living room from the south side of 44th Street through three stained glass windows. All Tiffany, of course. There's a domed yellow and blue stained glass ceiling. The eastern wall of the living room features a gigantic tile fireplace that was constructed using tile from the Alhambra Castle in Spain, where Velasco apparently visited and just straight up chiseled the tile off the fucking wall, which he stole to use in the construction of this apartment, which I didn't know you could do. Zero fucks given. Yeah. And is a bold as fuck move. He doesn't get, he's like, do you know who the fuck I am? <laughs> I'm like, I do what I want. Yeah. I'm, I'm a Bishop of Broadway, bitch. And because the apartment also doubled as a workspace, Velasco installed a church pew allegedly from Shakespeare's church for actresses waiting to audition in his apartment. And while he may have dressed like a priest, Velasco wasn't known for celibacy. At the back of the apartment, he had a small rickety private elevator that would transport actresses and groupies from the alley outside of the theater directly to his lavish apartment, which included a bedroom, a dance floor, a steam room, a library, a water fortress called the Grotto, What? which this is way before Hugh Hefner. This guy fucks for real. (laughs) Girl. And a confessional booth in his living room that was
1: built to fit a bed. Oh my, no, this is so kinky. I like... I love it so much. It's so kinky. <laughs> like I
0: love it so much. It's like definitely, you know that there's like some chorus girl who's like, bless me father for I have sinned and like blows them or some shit. Like this has to be what's going down. Like this is a hardcore religious kink. Like Christian kink that he had. Like, it a little bit reminds me of in Bad Santa, where Heather, Heather, she's like oh, she, fuck me, Santa. <laughs> and she's like, I'm Jewish, but I have this thing of fucking Santa. She's just like, fuck me, Santa. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's a whole vibe. Oh, my God. And he had Japanese wall panels that hid pornography. You know, casual. This man might be my hero. <laughs> Girl, I can't imagine can't imagine walking into this place. No. And just seeing this shit and being like, okay, I see. I see what's happening here. Cool. <laughs> After Belasco died in 1931, the apartment fell into disuse and was abandoned. In 1955, the Schubert's rescued a large amount of decor and used it to create the Belasco room in the Sardis building. David Belasco was one of the most powerful figures on Broadway, spending nearly every waking hour either in his theater or in his study-slash-apartment directly above, where he incidentally had a peephole installed so that he could spy on shows downstairs. So he's, like, obsessed. I mean, which, whatever, I get it. He's amazing and kinky as fuck. But, (laughs) again, if everyone's consenting, great. You do you, yeah. That's always my caveat to literally everything. Agreed. But as rumor has it, that even after his death, he never left his beloved theater. Belasco was first sighted on the first opening night after his death. And back in those days, Broadway shows had very short runs. They weren't like Phantom that was open for like 35 years and shit. It would be like a month, two months, something like that. And then, so that's also why he was able to churn and burn a hundred Broadway plays. Okay. Yeah. It was like, it was almost like uh, akin to like a movie. How like a movie's in a theater for like a month and a half. It'd be like the same type of thing. A man in priestly attire, similar to Belasco's stature, Was seen standing at the balcony railing, and shortly after, he sat in a seat and disappeared. Apparently, Belasco appears like he did in life, not only in his priestly garbs, but as a solid human being. Interesting. Right. No transparent, ethereal, wispy, ectoplasm, ghostly apparition shit. Like he, people mistake him for a person, for a real person. I know. Actors on stage have regularly spotted a lone figure dressed in a cassock and white collar watching the show or rehearsals very intently from the balcony. He's also said to offer praise to actors and has been known to walk right up to the actors, shake their hands, and tell them that they had done a fine job at the performance before vanishing. So this is what I'm saying. What a compliment. Right? Because this guy fucks. Yeah. He he knows what the fuck... He's the fucking Bishop of Broadway. He knows what the fuck time it is. Yeah. Hi, the building's named after me. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm amazing. You know those lights? You're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) All (laughs) me. Sightings of the theater pioneer have happened on many an opening night and have even been seen as good luck and as a sign that the production would be successful. However, Velasco's ghost isn't afraid to show his disapproval. He has
1: high standards. (laughs)
0: absolutely over the years actors have claimed to have heard moans in the theater wings and had their dressing rooms trashed after a particularly bad performance i want this afterlife so bad can you imagine you're just doing hamlet you're like oh fuck brother like i i mean (laughs) that would be amazing i love all of this so much i love everything about this on the opening night performance of oh calcutta a 1971 show whose only claim to fame was that it featured mostly naked people in comedy sketches. Several people witnessed what they believed to be Belasco's ghost walking out of his usual seat in the balcony in the middle of the performance. He was like, I literally can't even do this and I'm stuck here forever. Wow. That's some shit. You done fucked up. Yeah. I mean, I'm obsessed with everything. Like, I'm obsessed with everything about it. An usher told the talk of New York. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> what a great website. I'm like upset that that's not what this is called.
1: That's amazing.
0: It's so great. Quote, I did not believe in any of that. Then one night we were cleaning up in the mezzanine and out of the corner of my eye, I saw a guy sitting in one of the box seats. But when I turned, he was gone. But if I looked away again, I could kind of see him out of my peripheral vision. One of the other ushers was watching me and said, you sing that too? we both got out of there, end quote. In 2001, the stagehand who worked the follow spots for Follies saw the outline of a man in a black suit and what looked like a white collar in the box. She told the New York Post, quote, I finished my cue and ran up the second box, but there was no one there. And there's no way out of the box except down the stairs I came in on, end quote. Around the same time, a plumber who had spent many a late night at the theater was fixing something in the bedroom landing at the apartment atop the theater. He knelt down and noticed that next to his boot, there was a man's dress shoe peeking out from underneath a robe. He looked up quickly to see who was standing next to him. But guess what? Nobody was there. He requested to stop being put on late shifts at the Belasco after that. During a tech rehearsal for The Girl from North Country, which played at the Belasco in 2020 before the pandemic and resumed its run at the theater in 2022 after the pandemic, some stagehands were backstage when someone walked around the curtain. They thought at first that it was the props person, but the props person had already left the theater. And when they went to check who it was, guess what? Again, no one was there. Several actors have reported seeing the ghostly visage of David Belasco in their dressing room mirror. During the run of Passing Strange in 2008, Daniel Breaker told Playbill in an interview that one evening he was putting on his makeup in his dressing room mirror when he saw an old man with white hair sitting behind him, silently watching him. When Breaker turned around to be like, who the fuck are you? And how did you get into my dressing room? The man who resembled nobody working on the show was gone. Breaker reported the incident to the house manager and was told, quote, you just saw David Belasco. End quote. Melissa Eriko, who played Mina in Dracula the Musical, told Playbill.com, quote, my dresser Kathy saw him walk into a mirror the other day. She thinks he lives in the mirror in the wall outside my dressing room, which is very Phantom of the Opera, incidentally, for those who are familiar. One night, I forgot my coat and I had turned out the lights in my room. I turned back to get my coat in the dark and someone, maybe David, turned the small, pretty table light On for me to see my way. It was spooky. As I opened the door to leave, as I was walking out, quote unquote, someone closed the door behind me. I didn't touch it, but I watched it move, end quote. He also manifests himself in more traditional ghostly ways as well unexplained footsteps, doors mysteriously opening and closing at random or in unison, curtains swaying without being touched. The 2002 production of Frankie and Johnny was plagued with misplaced props and inexplicable smells of flowers and cigarette smoke and doors opening on their own. The stage manager recalled saying, quote, we'd close the kitchen door, then the curtain would rise and the door would be open, End quote. An usher was closing up the lobby one night and she facetiously called out, good night, Mr. Belasco. As soon as the words left her mouth, all the outside lobby doors swung open at the same time, she quit the next morning. Don't tease the ghost. Don't fuck with it. He's like, don't fuck with me. He was like, bye, bitch. Do you know who I am? Yeah. <laughs> don't fuck with me. And this is, I've been told that a lot of times, not a lot, but a fair amount by people who are nobody. And it's like, you're nobody and you're not on the list. But he's like, hi, my name is on the building. Fuck you. Yeah. There have been reports of the sound of raucous parties being held in the Belasco apartment, complete with the sound of feet dancing to 1920s-era music starting shortly after his death. When workers got upstairs to see who had broken in, they found the apartment empty, with its dust undisturbed, as it has been since it was sealed in 1989 after being found structurally unsound. During the run of Enchanted April in 2003, the disruptive noise of Belasco's private elevator running during the performance was heard on stage. To combat the issue, the stagehands decided to take the elevator out of the elevator shaft as it was clearly the result of an electrical malfunction, which is why it kept going up and down during the performance, only to find that the elevator had been taken out of the shaft back in
1: 1989. No. Girl, that gave me chills. No. I know. That's really creepy. Several curious things happened
0: during that particular production, as a matter of fact. Props had a habit of disappearing, specifically a flask and a fake check, only to reappear exactly where the props master had placed them after the scene was over. Jane Adams, who starred in Enchanted April, used to bring her mild-mannered yellow lab to the theater, and one day, it went nuts, excitedly barking at an empty room. And even though Belasco was married for 50 years, he fucked around. Shocking. A lot.
1: Oh, what, the guy with the fuck pad? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> With the fuck confessional? Yeah. Shocking. I know. This is the most shocking part of the story. And it appears that he still loves the ladies, even in the afterlife. Chorus girls have described having their rear ends pinched only to find no one behind them.
1: Can you imagine. <gasps> ghosts are still molesting people? No. Girl. Get out of here. C-
0: girl, ghosts need to be me too. Like, this is not cute, Belasco. Just saying. This is fucked up. Yeah. Others have heard a man whispering in their ear as they put on their stage makeup. When they look in their dressing room mirror to see who it is, they find no one there. But it appears that David Belasco isn't the only one to haunt the Broadway theater. A retired electrician who worked at the Belasco many times over the years and asked to remain anonymous sat down with Scott Brooks of TalkOfNewYork.com and told him, quote, around 11.30 every night, a woman with a kind of blue glow crosses the stage, end quote. She's known as the Blue Lady. Eyewitnesses have recounted seeing a very attractive blonde woman wearing a blue dress, walking back and forth in the balcony. The woman is believed to be one of Belasco's former girlfriends, who is said to have died in the building in 1925, leaving Belasco's apartment. She stepped into the elevator shaft, not realizing that although the doors had opened, <gasps> the elevator had malfunctioned mm-hmm, and was still on the ground floor.
1: No! That's a such a horrible
0: way to die. I know. She fell down the shaft, dying on impact. The spirit appears as an icy cold blue mist, and apparently costume designers at the theater like to pay homage to the lady in blue by putting one actress in a beautiful blue dress if they can for any production that runs at the Blasco. The blue lady has been seen on the theater stairways and dressing rooms. One television and film actress who asked to remain anonymous told Playbell.com that she heard her locked dressing room door open while she was taking a shower. Upon investigating, she found the door still locked, but the bathroom steeped in a blue glow. Joey Pantoliano, who is best known for playing Cypher in The Matrix, was in-
1: Yes! I love you. Yeah, girl.
0: I love you. Was in the 2002 production of Frankie and Johnny at the Blasco. And he swore he saw a big- aura-like blue light at the center of the balcony. During the 1995 production of Hamlet, starring Ray Fiennes, Francesca Annis, who played Gertrude, had a death scene every night where she'd die in a chair, center stage, looking up. And every night, she'd see a woman in a blue dress in the balcony walk up the center aisle and leave. But the extra weird thing about that ghostly sighting is that the Belasco's balcony doesn't have a center aisle. <gasps> What the fuck? Girl, stagehand Ted Abramov used to not believe in ghosts. Then in 1981, he and the head electrician were locking up for the day when he saw a woman in blue walking across the back of the theater. Abramov told the electrician what he saw, but he said that no one was there. He told them that he saw her go up the stairs to the first balcony. That's when his coworker replied, quote, oh, you saw the lady in blue, end quote. Abramov told the Post, quote, I'll remember the color of that dress to this day, end quote. Stagehand Peter Gersney was closing up one night in the mid-90s when a sudden chill made him turn around. He said, quote, I saw a two-foot trail of blue material, like the train of a dress going upstairs, end quote, to Belasco's apartment, which is wired with sensors that would have gone off if anyone was there. When no alarm sound, Gersney bolted. Current Belasco house manager Stephanie Wallace said that the Belasco has been comparatively quiet in the years since the 2010 renovation. But given that the girl from North Country, which ran in 2020 and 2022, had paranormal experiences, I'm inclined to disagree. However, she said, quote, I can tell you that the front door of my office suspiciously locks itself from time to time, and I know it isn't me doing it, End quote.
1: Then what the... No, bitch, you just contradicted your statement. What? I know.
0: And maybe she's just like, no, like shit's calmed down. It was way worse beforehand, which is horrifying. No, it's just the door that locks. Yeah. It's just sometimes I can't get out of my uh, my office. Casual. That is no, that's genuinely terrifying. No, thank you. The Belasco Theater has been home to countless productions that have shaped American theater. The Belasco was where a young Marlon Brando made his theatrical debut in 1946 in a production of Maxwell Anderson's Truckline Cafe. The theater produced the original staging of A Raisin in the Sun in 1959, starring Sidney Poitier, as well as the original Broadway stage production of The Rocky Horror Show, starring Tim Curry. Other stars who have graced the Belasco stage include William Holden, William H. Macy, Andre De Shields, Laura Bonatti, Patti LuPone, Neil Patrick Harris, and Brian Cranston, to name a few. The theater is currently operated by the Schubert Organization and has been since 1948. If you're interested in checking out the Belasco, Goodnight Oscar," starring Sean Hayes, who was most well-known for playing Jack in Will and Grace and who last month won a Tony Award for his performance as Oscar Levant in Goodnight Oscar is currently running until August 27th. And I saw the production with Donna. It's wonderful. And he's incredible in it. Actress Jane Addams said of the Belasco, quote, There's something about these old theaters. You have all these strong personalities who've worked so hard to get there. You almost can't imagine them leaving, end quote. And if all of these stories, of which there are a lot, as I covered, are to be believed, the Bishop of Broadway has never left. And that is the story of the most haunted theater on Broadway, the Belasco Theater.
1: Haunted as fuck. Capital A, capital F, totally. Yes, I loved that. That was fascinating.
0: Yeah, and I just didn't know... That he literally changed how, how theater is. Wildly impressive. Yeah. Name everything after him. Yeah. I'm fucking signed up for that. Dude, I will never get over his, it's like... Just this, like, weird Christian... The kinks. The kinks are... are yes! The, like,
1: fuck apartment. What the hell? <laughs> the
0: fuck apartment. The, like, fuck chapel.
1: I love it. <laughs> I love it so much. That was really interesting. And I, I feel like I learned a lot. I feel like that was very educational. So thank you. I got you, girl. You're welcome. I have to go walk in the theater district now and see this uh, see this theater. Yeah,
0: it's it's lovely. It's great. I, I've seen a lot of stuff there. That, I mean, they do. And it also like a weird thing about the Belasco. I think there's only been like 19 musicals that have ever run there, like in the entire, since 1907, since it opened. Damn. It's very almost strictly plays. Uh and one of the musicals I did see was Hedwig and the Angry Inch starring Neil Patrick Harris, which is incredible. Yeah. It was so good. And Brian Cranston did network there and it was amazing. It's just, it's a cool spot. Yeah. I want to go and see the ghost. I know. And now, now that I know this, I, I like the next time I go, I'm going to be like on the lookout.
1: Keep your eyes peeled for the father. For a priest. Yeah. Bishop of Broadway. That's a great, badass
0: name. I got to admit. I mean, and just like walking through town just and everyone knows who the fuck you are because you're dressed like a fucking priest. Yeah. Badass.
1: It's pretty badass. It's pretty badass. Well, I loved that. Thank you so much for that story. Of course. Thank you. I didn't do anything with really. Not yet. You liked it. You might not be saying thank you after I tell you the story. <laughs> I'm
0: appreciating <laughs> it. Oh, shit. Amy, Amy's birthday gift to all of us is she's
1: horrifying us. For her birthday. I. She's like, you're not wrong. I'm not going to lie. Halfway. <laughs> I wish you could see my face right now. I'm just like covering my eyes and yes. just, I <laughs> head in the hands being like, I know, I know. I'm sorry. I look so resigned. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to lie. Halfway through this story. I stopped and I was like, what am I doing to myself? Why did I, why did I pick this for this week? <laughs> like you could have done a nice, like, you could have picked whatever you wanted for your birthday. It could have been like a "everyone lives" story, and did you? No, of course not. No, that's not who you are. That is not who I. You am.
0: like trauma. I do like trauma. That's so. That's why you picked. You picked the most horrifying thing we've probably ever heard in our lives
1: for your birthday. No, no, I don't. It's it's bad. Um, I'm going to try not to get too detailed because, again, I did not want to just like ruin my week. <laughs> A little bit of a trigger warning for child abuse, though. So that tells you
0: kind of where I'm going.
1: But there was one aspect of this story that when I read it, I could not get over. And I'd never (laughs) heard about this story before. And I was like, Monique needs to hear this. So that's why I decided to do it. So
0: like mostly off of this one factoid? Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay.
1: Color me intrigued. Let's go. All right. Off to the races, baby. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Sources, Reddit, thank you, because that's where I first read about the story. Uh, law.justia.com, The New York Times, and newspapers.com. In 1981, 35-year-old Marie Moore was living in Patterson, New Jersey, with her 12-year-old daughter Tammy Moore, a 12-year-old daughter of a friend, Harriet Bain, and 50-year-old Mary Gardulo, who had been Marie's friend for several years. In the summer of 1981, three other children from the neighborhood started hanging out at Marie's house. 13-year-old Louis Montavo, 14-year-old Ricky Flores, Tammy's boyfriend, and Tammy's friend, 12-year-old Teresa Fury. Marie would take them on trips to the beach, amusement parks, and bowling alleys and let them hang out at her house. The children enjoyed spending time with her and even began to call her Ma. But in September of 1981, things started to change. At that time, Marie informed the children that her ex-husband was, get this, Billy Joel. Yep, you heard that correctly, that Billy Joel. Does he know that? No, no, he does not. All right, just
0: wanted to make sure we were all on the same page.
1: Yes, I don't think I need to tell you that this was obviously not true, Yeah. That Marie had never been married, let alone to the piano man himself. So I, I don't understand this level of delusion. Oh, girl, it's going to get so bad so quickly. And like, how dare you besmirch Billy Joel's name? How dare you?
0: What the fuck? Because this isn't, I, I don't know this story. Uh, uh, and so, because I'm assuming it's not that she's being
1: catfished. No. Okay. No. Oh, just just you wait, just you wait, girl. You're not ready. If only she was being catfished, Monique. If only. I'm, dude. I'm not. There was. <laughs> this reminds me. There was this this
0: woman that Christina worked with ages ago who was like hardcore being catfished by someone who claimed to be Robert Pattinson. Okay,
1: how do people fall for this?
0: <sighs> because they want to believe it's true, and I remember. <laughs> I happened to work on a movie with Robert Pattinson while this was happening. And she was like, oh, like, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And then Christina's like, really? Because my best friend's on set with him right now, actually. So that's not happening. It's not him,
1: obviously. It's not him. Um, <laughs> uh, so no, Billy's not aware. Billy is not aware. No, he has never met this woman.
0: He's, he's living with that uptown girl, Christy Brinkley, living his uptown life. Yes, correct.
1: Living his life, doing his thing. Now that, But Marie told them that Billy was her ex-husband and Tammy's father, and that he had contacted her to complain about how the household was being run. The children were, of course, confused by this story, but then the phone immediately rang. Because they've never seen fucking Billy Joel? Yeah. And because they probably aren't flushed
0: in Billy Joel money? Correct. And, like, don't have, like, a maid? And are, like, do your own fucking laundry? Because, like,
1: yeah. Yeah. Marie answered in front of them and claimed that it was Billy on the phone. She told them that Billy Joel would be stepping in to, quote unquote, straighten out the situation and that he was putting 14-year-old Ricky Flores in charge of the household to see if he would make a good husband for Tammy. She then told them that Billy... Wait, what? Girl, I told you. This is the thing that hooked me about the story. I was like, I'm sorry. This woman literally, like, blamed all this crazy shit on Billy Joel, what the actual fuck? You know what?
0: There's many a thing that I can blame on Billy Joel Boba like singing poorly in public? Like, absolutely. Billy Joel's done that to me many a time. Um I this isn't ins- I mean, obviously this is insane. Um It's insane.
1: What what's what time what time period is this again? This is 1981 right now. Okay. Girl. All right. I'm not ready. You're not ready. I'm I'm ready. This is insane. <laughs> You're not ready. She then told them that Billy would be assigning household chores to each of them and that he would set bombs off in the house if the children were to disobey his orders or tell anyone outside the household. How would Billy Joel get these bombs, you might ask? Well, apparently, according to Marie, he was a member of the mafia. And in addition to the bombs, she told them that Billy or other members of the mob would harm the children's family members if they disobeyed or told anyone what was happening. I literally had to look this up because I was like, is there a rumor that Billy Joel's in the mafia? And I, like, didn't know this. Like, no. He's not like Frank Sinatra. Correct, Monique. It's just, like, out of fucking left field. I, ah, uh, so ridiculous. This is insane. And I I
0: keep saying that. And I'm I know I'm gonna keep saying it as this story. You're gonna furls. continue to say that.
1: Yes. Because I know every week we're like, oh my god, this is the most insane story. Like this one actually This one actually is, though. Is <laughs> pretty fucking insane. Are <laughs> you like, okay. Girl. I'm I'm aghast. I know. All in the name of Billy Joel. How dare this woman? <laughs> I really, really infuriates me. Poor Billy. Poor Billy. How dare he have his name dragged through the mud like this? Like, fuck you. (laughs) I mean, God. I know. She then told the children that they would be required to come to her house every day after school, and the children agreed. As soon as they arrived, Marie would quote unquote receive a call from Billy, who would give the children a list of rules and chores. They would then have to recite the list of rules back to her, and if one of them didn't recite them correctly, Marie told Ricky that Billy wanted him to discipline that child by hitting them with a wiffle ball bat. After enduring their punishments for inevitably reciting something wrong, Harriet, Teresa, and Lewis would then do their assigned chores. Afterwards, Marie would make a call to Billy to tell him the chores had been done. Ricky was then required to inspect the children's work. He told her that they'd done a good job, but Marie said that Billy disagreed and would point out something that hadn't been done or done to his standards.
0: I have so many questions, and I'm, I am I also don't want to step on your story, and I don't want to, like, if if it's a thing that's coming up, like, A, number one, why Billy Joel of everyone?
1: I they She never explains it. She never explains it. I have no idea why she picked Billy Joel. Also, like, I don't, when I think of Billy Joel, I don't think of,
0: like, someone to be feared. <laughs> it's not like Arnold Schwarzenegger's going to whoop your ass if you don't do your fucking homework. Yes. Thank you. Mr. T's going to come in and, like, you know, straighten some shit up. Billy Joel is not threatening. We didn't start the fire. Billy Joel.
1: Yes. Uptown girl. Really?
0: In the middle of the night, Billy Joel. Uptown girl, Billy Joel. Yeah. Is going to fuck your life up if you
1: don't fold your laundry correctly. What the fuck? What? (laughs) He's not innately feared as a person. Not to my knowledge. So it's very, very confusing. I have no idea. And I don't even really know if the children like fully I assume they did and she listened to like Billy Joel music around the house and was like this is the fucking guy
0: cause it's not like like the kids are like I fuck with Billy Joel so hard and it's like well Billy Joel ah, is saying that no. you know like when I was a kid my mother would be like if you like she would pretend make calls to Santa being like you're being a piece of shit and Santa you know that is so fucked up oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. all the time <laughs> so like psychological trauma man <laughs> You know? Fun for the whole family. Raising the perfect child through, through guilt manipulation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that, like, I that had a vested interest in Santa, obviously, because he's going to give me shit. Um, of, of all of the prominent figures of the 80s, I don't understand how she
1: settled on Billy Joel to be this taskmaster. I have no idea why she picked Billy Joel. She never explains it. The children never explain it. It is the most random choice. And I, it's the thing that stuck out the most in this story is like of all people billy joel really like all right what did billy ever do to you bro right seriously except make amazing music how dare you
0: amazing music that brings a whole bar together and singing yes thank you i know i do it every night people love their uptown girl
1: uh, yes it's a great song i would burst out in that right now if somebody started playing it stop it it's a great song So if something hadn't been done or done to his standards, Ricky was then ordered to beat the children again. Now, as far-fetched as it seems, all the children believed that Marie was actually in touch with Billy Joel. Because... Why wouldn't they be? Yes, because one, they're children. Because she's the adult. Yeah. Uh, But also, she received phone calls instead of just making them, which, although they didn't know... That could be like a collections agent. It could. So also... She worked for the phone company as a telephone operator, which is like where she learned how to do this. Also, you could just like call your friend and be like, hey, can you call me at this certain time? And I'm going to pretend you're Billy Joel. Be cool. <laughs> pretend to be Billy Joel so I could yes. beat my children.
0: Um, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm trying to make any of this make sense
1: and it's just not. It will not. And I know we're not even into the story. <laughs> it will not make sense. That's because it's insane. Um, yes. This is insane. Another reason they believed her was because Mary, the only other adult in the household, confirmed that Marie was actually talking to Billy. Because apparently, Mary had met Billy on a trip to California with Marie in 1978. Now, whoever she met was obviously not Billy Joel, but because (laughs) she was friends with Marie and trusted her, she believed that it was. And because of their interaction, was now terrified of him. So when Mary heard about the first phone call, she became visibly upset, and her reaction helped convince the children that Billy was not only real, but in contact with Marie. For months, Marie continued to abuse the children every day after school on quote-unquote Billy's orders. Harriet was the one who took the brunt of the punishments during this time because she was the only one actually living with Marie besides her daughter Tammy at the time. However, Teresa and Lewis were also being regularly punished after school each day. Towards the end of October, Marie began to worry that Lewis's parents would find out since his family lived nearby and he had a strict curfew. So at the end of October, Marie told Lewis that Billy had said that he could go home and he never was supposed to return. However, Ricky was ordered to, quote, give him something to remind him not to say anything, end quote, and after a final beating, Lewis left the household for good at the end of October. I'm sorry. Um are are, are Lewis's parents not coming seeing
0: him come home and beat the fuck up?
1: I assume it's like a not the face situation schoolyard thing. Yeah. Also at this point it's only with a wiffle ball bat, which if I remember correctly, is like the plastic yeah. hollow bat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which like I mean, I'm pretty sure it still hurts. I'm not trying to, like, act like it's not a big deal. But I, I, I don't think it's, it's not an aluminum baseball bat. No. Yeah. Lewis had been subjected to the physical abuse for less than two months. And while it hadn't been as intense as what was inflicted on the others, because Marie was worried about his family finding out, it still took a heavy physical toll on him. Ironically, though, it was around this time that Ricky's parents started to get suspicious that something fishy was going on especially when they discovered that he hadn't been attending school and that a woman who said she was Ricky's mother had told them that her son had injured his back and couldn't attend. The woman was, What the fuck? Right? This bitch. The woman was obviously Marie, and Ricky's mother suspected as much. When Ricky came home that night, she grounded him and told him that she or his father would be driving him to and from school from now on in an attempt to keep him away from Marie. After this, Ricky's mom said she noticed Marie following them in her car, though. Oh, this this woman's going all out. Next level. What's so wild to me is that, like, straight people
0: or, like, people who, who engage in heterosexual sex can just have a kid whenever. Yeah. Like, just e- even if they're, like, wildly mentally disturbed or abusive or, 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 or they just can.
1: Yeah. Insane. So you don't need a license. You don't need to pass any sort of test. No. Just like, nope. Yeah. Not be like a, a decent human being. Nope. Not be abusive. It's like, yeah, you just go to town. Have fun. No qualifications. Nope. It is very nope. upsetting. I'm not going to lie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. After a couple of weeks, Marie approached Ricky when he was alone and claimed that Billy Joel demanded that Ricky move in with Marie <laughs> to help her with an addiction to drugs. Ricky believed this. What the fuck? Yeah. Is he like 14 years old or something? Yes. But I guess prior to this, she like gave him the drugs to like keep away from her. And he was like kind of helping her before this. So this made sense to him. And he believed it. This is so wildly bad. Oh. Like all of it. Yes. And going to get worse. 100%. So Ricky believed this and he ran away from his parents' house and started living with Marie full time. However, he continued to keep in touch with his mother and would call her two or three times a day. He told his mother that he was happy there and didn't want to move back. He, I'm sorry. He's not 18 years old. How is this happening? Correct. I don't know. It's the fucking 80s and like nobody gives a shit, I guess. Right. Exactly. Amy, you took the fucking <laughs> words out of my mouth. I was like, I know it's the 80s and no one gives a shit. That's literally the only
0: thing I could think. I understand this. Yes. Like I mean, if if I was like fuck you, mom and dad, at fourteen, I'm gonna live at some other fucking person's house. They'd call the cops and have me picked up and taken home. Yeah, they're like, like, no, you don't live there. You're coming home with us. Thank you. And because you're a child, you don't have the right to say I'm gonna go somewhere else. No, unless you emancipate yourself. Correct.
1: Again, they're they're probably like awesome. He's out of the house for a little bit. We'll like enjoy some quality time a so peace and quiet this is insane everything about this is insane it's bananas um so he told his mother that he was happy there and he didn't want to move back not true he asked her on several occasions <sighs> if he could go back and she told him billy uh. told him no yes because billy joel says no this is insane it's insane i know i know i you will never get over the billy joel aspect i'm sorry i i keep
0: saying it and i'm sorry that that i'm gonna keep saying it um It doesn't
1: make it less true. This is insane. It's bananas, McGee. Correct. Marie had told Ricky to be distant with his mother, however, and not to tell her that he was at her house. She also told him that his mother had filed a complaint against him at the end of October and that this proved that she didn't care about him when really she's just trying to get him fucking back and away from this crazy bitch. While she had filed a complaint against him for being wayward and incorrigible, it was only to get the police to investigate the matter. But every time they showed up to Marie's home to question her, she hid in a crawl space and eventually the authorities stopped coming. During this time, things got even more bizarre. Marie claimed that Billy Joel's men had pulled her over and given her an injection that would allow Billy to possess her body and speak through her. I wish I was making this up because it sounds like something you could only make up, but this is true and this happened. Marie then put her hands over her face, removed them, and said, quote, I'm not Marie, I'm Billy, end quote. I'm the piano man. (laughs) I'm the piano man. Both Mary Gardulo and the children believed that Billy had somehow possessed Marie's body because she started, quote, talking like a man, and her voice got deeper, end quote. She sounded more demanding, had a meaner voice, and swore a lot, which was something that Marie hadn't done prior to this. After this, she would regularly change into Billy and give Ricky orders in the masculine voice. And because she now became Billy, the phone calls obviously stopped. After this, the punishments got worse, and instead of using a wiffle ball bat, Ricky was ordered to use heavy medical textbooks to beat everyone in the household, including Mary, because she was butting in and had tried to keep Ricky from beating Harriet. Marie also began demanding that Ricky punish her as well. Harriet, fortunately, was finally able to escape from the house on November 27th, 1981, after two failed attempts. When she was found on the streets, barefoot and without a jacket, the police were called. Harriet told them what happened, but didn't mention Ricky or Marie by name or give them Marie's address, fearing that she would be sent back. Afterwards, she was taken to a hospital where an examination revealed proof of the extensive beatings she'd received. Harriet was hospitalized for a week and during that time eventually told police Ricky and Marie's full names as well as the address. The Division of Youth and Family Services, or DYFS, started an investigation and went to talk to Marie. She denied that Ricky lived there, she hit him before they came, or that any beatings had taken place. Mm. Instead, she told them that Harriet had severe behavioral and self-harm issues and claimed that she was making it all up. And apparently, Marie was so calm and reasonable when they interviewed her that they just believed her. So their solution was just to advise Harriet not to return to Marie's and sent her to a 90-day psychiatric evaluation program. The the kid? Yeah, the little girl. Who's not insane? No. In this combo. Correct. Uh Uh-huh. But love that Marie is so convincing, and she told them that she has behavioral and self harm issues. So they were like, "All right, well, at least we got her away from that. If it is true, and we'll send her to this program in case what Marie said is true."
0: I under- again, I understand this is the eighties, and there's not really like computers and shit, but like this person has to have a record. I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm trying to make any of this make sense because it's uh, like. uh, I don't think so. Not to my knowledge. Did she have a record prior to this? There's not been any complaints or anything uh, against this person? No. I think this is like
1: her first kind of like foray into this, I guess. Although like apparently this story was like in the works for a while that she knew Billy Joel because like. Mary had quote-unquote met him and stuff. So I, I don't know if this is like a long con or what, but it's just fucking ridiculous, the whole thing.
0: Well, it's because the con, from what I'm understanding in this moment, is just to be able to
1: beat the shit out of these kids. Yeah, I think it's like a, a power trip thing.
0: Yeah, it's not even like I'm going to say I fucked Billy Joel like behind a Wegmans and like no. these kids are his. Um,
1: it will, it escalates. We'll, we'll get into it.
0: Okay, okay. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. I keep no, you're totally interjecting. Fine. It's just so ins- like my brain is broken because I don't. You can't process it. Yes. I'm just trying to understand this and it's probably not understandable because I'm not insane. Correct. All of that is correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Cool. Love that. Love that for us. <laughs> Love that for everyone. <laughs> Enjoy. <laughs> About two weeks after Harriet's escape, Marie told Ricky that Billy Joel had run Harriet over in his car for her disobedience. And once again, Ricky believed her. <laughs> With only two victims left in the house now, Mary and Teresa, the punishments not only got worse, but increased in severity over time. At some point in late 1981, Marie moved everyone to another apartment nearby that was owned by a friend of hers, Ferdinando Ragusa who she claimed was also Tammy's grandfather. In January 1982, shortly after the move, Marie, as Billy, told Ricky that Marie loved him and wanted to have sex with him. Billy asked him whether he wanted to be her boyfriend or her son, and Ricky said he thought of her as a mother. But Billy told him not to hurt Marie's feelings and warned him that he had beaten up other guys who had mistreated Marie in the past. After that, Marie and Ricky, who... I feel the need to remind everyone, was only 14 years old at this point, mm-hmm. began a sexual relationship. Oh my God. Yes. After that development, Mary and Teresa's punishments became more severe and started to include sexually deviant forms of torture. The practice of thumb cuffing was introduced where Mary and Teresa were forced to lie nude on their stomachs on the floor then one thumb would be tied to one big toe, and they would be left there for hours. Jesus. The beatings with heavy books and the wiffle ball back continued, and now also included kicking, punching, and cigarette burns. After months of torture, on Memorial Day, May 31st, 1982, Mary finally managed to escape from the household. She told Marie that she wanted to work on Memorial Day so that she could make extra money for them. But when she got to work, she only used the phone to contact her brothers and sisters who came and got her and took her to the police. Detective Tom Kerwin interviewed her and she told him about the abuse she and Teresa had endured from Ricky and that Marie Moore knew what was happening. She did not mention Billy Joel to him at any point, (laughs) which I kind of get because, like, I feel like that's where you lose all credibility in a story. Sure. Yeah. Or she was just that terrified of Billy Joel. I don't know.
0: Yeah, maybe, maybe Billy's
1: people are gonna. (laughs) Yeah, Billy's mob people. Oh man. She gave him Marie's address and told him that Teresa Fury was still in the home and being abused. Since Teresa was a juvenile, the police reported Mary's allegations to DYFS and to the juvenile division of the Patterson Police Department. Kathy Della Pesca was assigned as the social worker to the case and a week after Mary escaped on June 7th, she spoke to Teresa and Tammy at school about the alleged beatings. While both denied the allegations, they did tell her that they had seen Ricky recently at Marie's house. When she questioned Marie, Marie denied the accusations and said that Teresa was her godchild and that she would never harm her. She also denied having seen Ricky after January of 1982, but changed her story when Della Pesca told her that the girls had said that they had seen Ricky recently at her house. She admitted that she had seen him, but that it had been three weeks earlier when he had visited very briefly. Later that same day, Della Pesca returned to Marie's house with her supervisor, Detective Dolores Most of the Patterson Police Department's Juvenile Division and Detective Stell and Dowling. When she saw the police, Teresa tried to escape out the back door, but was stopped by Stell and Dowling, who sent her back inside. Inside the home, Della Pesca and Most questioned Marie about the alleged beatings and sexual abuse, which she continued to deny. Della Pesca then asked Teresa to undress. She did, and numerous bruises were visible on her body. But both Teresa and Marie claimed that they didn't know how the injuries had occurred, and Marie said that Teresa must have fallen at school that day. De La Pesca took photographs of Teresa's body to document her injuries and made an appointment with a doctor who examined Teresa two days later, on June 9th. The doctor determined that the bruising was not consistent with a fall, but was consistent with beatings, cigarette burns, and other repeated serious physical abuses. The next day, Della Pesca took Harriet and Teresa to the police to solicit statements from them. Harriet told Detective Most that Ricky and Billy, who came through Marie Moore, are responsible for the abuse. Teresa eventually admitted that there was abuse in the home, but put all the blame on Ricky and claimed that she was innocent of the allegations. On June 10th, 1982, Marie was again interviewed by police and again denied all claims of abuse. However, when she was confronted with Mary Gardulo's statement to the police, she admitted that the beatings and abuse had occurred, but then had the audacity to claim that she was also a victim. Oh, fuck you. She claimed that Ricky would come to the house on weekends, she made him live there full time, that she rejected his sexual advances. She coerced him into a sexual relationship and said that he would abuse her and Mary, who had tried to stop him from hurting Marie. She claimed that she never saw him abuse Teresa and that he never hurt Tammy, but that he had threatened to if Marie told on him, which was, of course, the reason for her earlier denials. On June 11, Detective Most talked to Louis Maltavo, who also denied any allegations of abuse. But... Unbeknownst to the detective, Marie had found Lewis that morning and warned him that Billy Joel would get him and his family if he said anything to the police about Ricky. After Lewis's interview, Detective Most contacted Marie and told her to call the police if she saw Ricky. After that, 12-year-old Teresa was the only victim left in the house. She continued to report to Marie's house every day as she'd been instructed, and the punishment she suffered once again increased in severity. Teresa eventually became a permanent resident of the household on September 22nd, 1982, after a phone conversation between the girl's grandmother and Marie. Teresa's grandmother told Marie that DYFS workers and detectives were interested in speaking to Teresa. And Marie, fearful that Teresa would tell them what was going on, told Teresa, as Billy Joel, of course, that she was going to start living there. And somehow convinced her guardian or guardians that she needed to live with Marie full-time. Again, I don't know why everyone's just like willing to pawn off their children, but... Other than it's the 80s and no one gave a fuck. And no one gives a shit, yeah. During the day, Ricky was ordered to keep Teresa cuffed to a hook on the kitchen wall. And at night, he would transfer her to the bathroom and cuff her to the bathtub. What the fuck? Yes. He also started... Or is more likely, was ordered to start sexually abusing her. And Marie started taking Teresa to Ferdinando Ragusa and forcing her to perform oral sex on the elderly man, which he would pay Marie for. Yes, the level. How dare you blame this fucking disgusting bullshit on Billy Joel? I hate this woman. No. My jaw's on the floor and I'm clutching my chest. What the fuck is the story? What the fuck is the story? A hundred percent, girl. I couldn't get over it. Billy Joel. I will never. Marie and Ricky eventually stopped feeding Teresa and wouldn't allow her to use the bathroom. At first, they gave her a pot, but eventually started forcing her to wear disposable diapers, which were the only thing she was allowed to wear. After weeks of confinement, continued abuse and starvation, Teresa eventually lost consciousness while cuffed in the kitchen. Marie became alarmed when Teresa began having a seizure and attempted to bring her out of it. After ensuring that Teresa regained consciousness and believing that she'd been faking the seizure, Marie told Ricky to thumbcuff her again and leave her. At some point in January, 1983, Marie ordered Ricky to get Teresa out of the bathroom so that Tammy could wash up before school. He would do this every morning, then recuff Teresa in the kitchen. However, this time, after he uncuffed her, he noticed that she was not getting up on her own. So he lifted her up by her shoulders and brought her to her knees. When he let go of her, Teresa fell and hit her head on the bathtub and then the bathroom floor. He then picked her up and took her into the hallway where he checked her breathing and noted that she was moaning. Girl, I know, it's gonna get real bad after this because, okay, yeah, uh-huh. yeah. When she stopped moaning, he pushed down on her stomach, which produced a sound, quote, like the sound of someone going to the bathroom, end quote, which Marie believed meant that Teresa was dead. After Tammy left for school, Marie and Ricky wrapped Teresa's body in garbage bags and duct tape and hid her in the attic and covered her with insulation. Oh my God. Yes. It's so awful and so fucked up. And the fact that, again, this woman is blaming all of this shit on Billy Joel. I will never get over this story. Never.
0: My head is in my hands, my jaw's on the floor. Yes. I, I literally,
1: what the fuck is this story? It's insanity, is what it is. It's batshit insane. Yes. When Tammy came home, Marie told her that they had sent Teresa's body to her father, Billy Joel, in New York City. Oh my God. They eventually moved Teresa's body from the attic to a crawl space in the bedroom before eventually just moving to a new apartment altogether. After Teresa's death, Marie spoke with Teresa's grandmother on numerous occasions. The last time was in September of 1983, when Marie asked her if she had heard from Teresa. Obviously, this was to conceal her own involvement in Teresa's death. Right, yeah. In July of 1983, Ricky Flores' brother, Philip, saw a boy who looked like Ricky working at a factory. After confirming it was indeed his brother, Philip immediately went and got their mother, and the two returned to confront Ricky but when Ricky saw them, he ran away, and although Philip ran after him, he was unable to catch him. The two then went back to the house because Mrs. Flores knew that Ricky would call her, which he did. After they talked on the phone, she then asked Philip to deliver a copy of the charges she had filed against Ricky to Marie's mailbox. On the morning of July 12th, Detective Moss obtained a juvenile warrant for Ricky Flores and delivered it to Marie's new apartment. When the police entered the premises, they found Ricky hiding under the sink. He was immediately placed under arrest, and the police took both Ricky and Marie in for questioning. Marie claimed that she had kept Ricky in her home only because Ricky's mafia boss, Don DeMarco, threatened to harm her and her daughter. The detectives rightfully did not believe this, however. Marie then admitted that there had been violence in the household, but claimed that Mary Gardulo had instigated the violence by interfering too much and that Ricky had never hit Teresa or Harriet. When questioned about Teresa, she said she had no— I, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, is she attractive? So I don't know if she's attractive. She may be. That may have helped the situation. But apparently, she was just so cool and calm and collected when she was lying that it just—it wasn't suspicious. Like, she was just—there was no nerves. She didn't have any ticks. She was just completely confident in whatever she was saying. And they were like, okay, this one's like, obviously telling the truth. Yeah. Is what I got from the story, at least. Uh Uh-huh. But that's a fair question because I do feel like people will, yeah. Yeah, because they do. Cut you some slack. They do. For your attractive. Yeah. Yes. When she was questioned about Teresa, she said she had no idea where she was, but hoped that she was safe, which, bitch, fuck you. Fuck you. The detectives also confronted her about her relationship with Ricky and told her they believed it was sexual in nature, not a maternal relationship as Marie had claimed, And she eventually admitted that she had been intimate with Ricky to the authorities. Although charges were filed against her in July 1983 for having sex with a minor, endangering child welfare, giving a false statement, and interfering with Ricky Flores' custody, she was not arrested and was released from custody, it seems.
0: Because those are the 80s and
1: no one gave a shit. And no one gave a shit, apparently. Afterwards, Ricky went back to live with his family and ended all contact with Marie. At first, she attempted to get him to come back, but when that didn't work, she started to plan ways to ensure he wouldn't talk about what had really happened and enlisted the help of a family she had convinced to move into her new apartment with her, a couple and their two young children. How was she this fucking convincing? I have no idea. But apparently everyone's fucking buying this bullshit.
0: Buying the bullshit, yeah.
1: Except it was like the husband in the situation does not, fortunately, which we'll Mm -hmm. discuss right now. Other than Billy Joel. Oh my God, I can't. Monique, I cannot. I will never get over Billy Joel. (laughs) Again, she told this family her Billy Joel bullshit and started doing the telephone stunts again. There was no abuse this time, but she eventually told them that she had received the injection that allowed Billy Joel to manifest in her body. Wait, she said this to adults? Yeah. She said that they're like in their 20s. Yeah. Yeah and they're like totally cool. I buy that. Well, I mean she she said it to Mary too who was in her 50s. And Mary believed her, but apparently she had met Billy Joel in California with her and was terrified of him. So, yes.
0: I I I my brain's broken, Amy. I don't understand how cuz it was like kids, okay. I don't understand how 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 adults are like, yeah, totally um Billy Joel can just uh possess you whenever.
1: Apparently, this woman is that convincing. The husband did not believe this for a second, but his wife and her sister apparently did. Because that's impossible. Yes, correct. Thank you. The 80s were wild,
0: Monique. I mean, that is true. Satanic panic is kind of happening right now. Yeah, but um, you never know what's possible. I, 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 I just continue. My brain's broken. I'm sorry. This is <laughs> insane. This entire story is insane.
1: So his wife and her sister apparently did and began to help her make plans to keep Ricky quiet. The husband also overheard Marie coaching Tammy to say that she saw Ricky beat Teresa to death and also that he had raped Tammy. On December 20th, Tammy gave a formal statement to the police saying what Marie had told her to say and the police went to search the property owned by Ferdinando Ragusa for Teresa's body. Marie and Tammy kept pointing to a depression in the backyard claiming it could be where Teresa's body was buried. Although the police checked the area, they did not find her body, so they made plans to come and search again the next day. When no one showed up, though, Ragusa called the police to ask when they would be coming. They told him that they didn't think they would follow through and would probably be closing the investigation, which was a lie, for the record. Mm. Mm -hmm. Almost immediately after telling him this, Marie called the detectives to ask about whether they were closing the investigation and they said they were, to see how Marie would respond. Mm -hmm. When she showed up at the police department shortly after with a piece of bloodied insulation, the detectives sent it off for testing and immediately went to search the property again. They searched the attic and found a roll of duct tape, white powder that they recognized as lime, and a tray with candle wax on it, but again didn't find Teresa's body. However, they had noticed that the house had a quote-unquote strong, foul smell and eventually uncovered the crawl space where Teresa's body had been hidden. After photographing the scene, the police sent the body to the medical examiner. On December 22nd, 1983, the medical examiner performed an autopsy on Teresa Fury, which revealed that a blow to her head and face had ultimately killed her. But that she had been alive and in a coma for up to eight hours, slowly suffocating as her brain swelled, correct. Because you were like, oh no, the story can't get more horrifying. Yes, it can. Fuck my life. I hate everything. <sighs> I know, deeply upsetting. I did this to us. You did. I'm sorry. Did. I am sorry. I could not get over the Billy Joel aspect, and I needed to tell you about this. I mean, I get it. It's insane. It's insane. It's insane. It's. <sighs> there was not enough soft tissue remaining to determine whether Teresa had suffocated as a result of the taping and wrapping, although the examiner did testify that this kind of wrapping could suffocate someone. On December 23rd, Marie returned to the police station. After being advised of her rights, she agreed to waive them and expressed her desire to cooperate in the investigation. She initially denied having witnessed the murder, but after detectives confronted her, she admitted that she had and claimed that Ricky had killed Teresa by slamming her head against the bathtub that he alone had disposed of the body, and that she had tried to help Teresa. Go fuck yourself. Get fucked. I can't. I can't. I cannot. On December 28th, Marie admitted that Billy Joel was not actually involved, shocker, but that he was a real personality that Ricky Flores would bring out of her and told them that she would not remember what happened when she was Billy. Yes. Apparently, she thinks she has multiple personalities. Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Um, and that Billy Joel is one of her personalities. Can you
0: imagine no. being Billy Joel, living your Billy Joel life? And you read about this shit in the newspaper? Doing whatever.
1: Yeah. And you're like, what the fuck? No, it's absolutely insane. No. I also cannot imagine being the police and having to write this shit up. You're like, okay, this sounds ridiculous. Because it is. Yes. And someone's dead. And someone's dead. A little 12-year-old girl who didn't deserve <sighs> this. So fucked. It's, it's all, it's all bad. However, Marie claimed that Billy had played no part in Teresa's death and said that she had not become Billy since Ricky had left, which was a lie because she did it with the fucking other family a fucking million times. And because that's not a thing. Correct.
0: Sorry, it's not real. Correct. You're not Billy Joel. No. No. Billy Joel's Billy Joel. Yes. Thank you. It has nothing to do with this. Thank you, buddy. Ma'am. <laughs> Ma'am. <laughs> you're welcome. It needed to be stated. I'm sorry. Uh, this is... It's insane. My brain stopped
1: functioning like 40 minutes ago. I, I can't. I, the story's insane. After giving this statement, Marie Moore was immediately arrested and charged with Teresa Fury's death. After reviewing statements from the victims and other witnesses, they decided not to charge Ricky as an adult and entered a plea agreement instead where he would be given a maximum custodial term of three years and in return, he would testify against Marie. Marie, on the other hand, was charged with the following crimes. Purposeful and knowing murder by her own conduct, felony murder, attempted murder, sexual assault, two counts of aggravated sexual assault, two counts of aggravated criminal sexual contact, Four counts of aggravated assault, five counts of kidnapping, four counts of terroristic threats, burglary, theft by unlawful taking or disposition, theft by deception, theft by extortion, two counts of endangering the welfare of a child, interference with custody, three counts of tampering with a witness, hindering apprehension or prosecution, and false swearing.
0: If you tell me she got like three years for all those counts, I'm going to fucking flip this table and the podcast is over.
1: Oh, no, no, no. No, justice will be served. I promise you. If Okay, good. Great. Great. No one worry. Because it's the 80s and no one gives a shit, so you never know. You never know. But no, this I wouldn't have done this if this didn't have okay. a satisfying resolution. Okay, okay. Good, thank you. In 19 of the 33 counts, her liability was based on a complicity theory, and the counts in which the state charged accomplice liability included felony murder, attempted murder, the various kidnapping and assault charges, as well as those counts involving terroristic threats and theft by extortion. The prosecution's case against Marie Moore was based primarily on the testimony of Ricky Flores, as well as that of the surviving victims, namely Louis Montalvo, Harriet Bain, and Mary Gardulo. The testimony of the other victims was used to help prove Ricky's credibility because their versions of the events that occurred in Marie's home before they escaped were consistent with Ricky's testimony. Mm -hmm. This was necessary since Ricky was the only witness to the killing of Teresa Fury other than Marie Moore and the murder charge hinged on his testimony. However, it was further supported by the fact that Marie had made multiple contradictory statements and repeatedly altered her story in an attempt to mislead the authorities. Mm -hmm. Teresa's grandmother and the DYFS investigators also testified to prove that Marie had attempted to conceal the criminal acts happening in her house. The state argued that Marie had enjoyed controlling her victims, obtained gratification from her power over them, And use them for monetary gain, while separating herself from her Billy character so that the children would continue to care for her. The defense went with an insanity plea and presented experts who testified that Marie suffered from a multiple personality disorder that rendered her legally insane. One of the experts testified that the multiple personality disorder was the result of her history of sexual abuse by her father. Sorry, get fucked. Right. Also, he denied the allegations of abuse on the stand. Yeah. The experts also said that Marie suffered from brain damage, namely frontal lobe atrophy, which they produced a CAT scan results that apparently proved this. They supplemented the expert's testimony with evidence of a history of seizures, as well as evidence of her general psychological history. They also argued that Marie's orders to Ricky to inflict punishment on and withhold food from Teresa manifested an extreme indifference to human life rather than an actual intent to kill. Bullshit. Yeah.
0: Again, this is that thing of like the audacity that these lawyers have just like to dig up whatever the fuck to get their client off is
1: insane to me. It's crazy. Yeah. The state, however, called three expert rebuttal witnesses who concluded that Marie did not suffer from a multiple personality disorder, that she was in fact malingering, and that she was therefore not legally insane. Yep. They did, however, conclude she suffered from a personality disorder of some type, most likely antisocial personality disorder. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, this woman is obviously not sane. She thinks she's fucking possessed by Billy Joel. Yes, and that she's talking to Billy Joel. Yeah. On November 15th, the jury reached its verdict, rejecting the insanity defense for all counts and finding Marie Moore guilty on all counts except aggravated assault of Louis Montavo, burglary, and attempted murder. The jury was deadlocked with regard to the aggravated assault and burglary charges, but unanimously acquitted her of attempted murder. Marie was sentenced to the death penalty on November 19th, 1984, and she received lengthy sentences for the remaining counts, most run consecutively, for a total of 224 and a half years, with eligibility for parole in 87 and a half years, which... That's correct. Yes. She'll be dead. Good. Fuck her. Great. Correct. In 1988, her death sentence was challenged due to a procedural error during the trial. The court ordered her retried for the slaying and overturned her death penalty sentence. Although Marie is no longer on death row, her sentence for the other charges remains, and she will thankfully remain in prison for the rest of her life. Bye. Fuck you. Bye. I... Could not find any, like, follow-up information with any of the other victims or anything. I hope they're doing well. This was the batshit insane story of the time Marie Moore accused Billy Joel of running, like, a terror abuse ring.
0: I just, it broke my brain, Amy.
1: I couldn't handle it. I read this and I was like, how have I not heard this, like, a million times before? This is one of the most insane stories I've ever heard.
0: Um, Yeah it's, it's horrendous. Uh, Like, uh, 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 yeah, I'm sorry. My brain's broken. That's, that's all folks. Um, that was insane in every way possible.
1: Uh, yep. There's no other word for it. So, go listen to Uptown Girl. Billy Joel didn't actually murder anybody, is not a part of the mob. Like, yes, fuck this bitch. Uptown Girl's amazing.
0: And if you're in New York and are able to, you should go see Billy Joel perform live because he has a residency uh, that he's had for the last 10 years. Once a month, he plays Madison Square Garden and his last show is going to be in January.
1: Yeah, I was going to say it's ending soon.
0: So it's after 150, 150 performances. Uh, and he's great. I've seen him perform live and he comes out and he's like, I'm not going to sing anything new. You will know every song. And it's like, thank you, Billy. You know, because you're a decent human. Thank you. Not this fucking trash monster.
1: No. He would never want anyone to do this to anybody. No. No.
0: Leave Billy Joel alone. (laughs) Leave Billy alone. Um, That story was insane. I'm not going to get over it for a long time. I
1: know. This one's going to stick with you. Yep. Yep. Well, happy birthday to you. I know, I know. Why why did I do this to myself? Literally, midway through, I was like, why? Why did I do this? And I was like, right, I did it for Billy Joel. Like, it's too crazy. I knew you would flip out about it. I needed to see your reaction.
0: Um, It's insane. Um, But surely, happy birthday to you. I love you so much. I'm happy you were born and that you're alive and you're my psychic sister, my partner in true crime. Thank you. Um, I adore you so
1: much. Thank you. I can't wait to go to garbage with you to celebrate my birthday.
0: Yeah, by the time, by the time... This episode comes out. We will be garbaging it up. Yeah, we will.
1: Baby. Us and Shirley Manson. I love it. Assuming that the rain doesn't fuck it up. but uh, I will dance in the rain, Monique. No hesitation.
0: Oh, same. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for that story that horrified me to my core.
1: Of course. Always. Thank you for your story. I learned so much. And I kind of want to meet the Bishop of Broadway. He sounds badass. I mean, same girl. Yeah, same.
0: Now I'm gonna be on the lookout whenever I'm at the Belasco. And thank you guys so much for listening. This is another fucking horror podcast. I'm Monique Sanchez, and I'm Amy Trading. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's lobot. Period. Amy. You should also follow the gram because we'll post pictures of. Oh, you gotta see the fucking bishop of Broadway. He lit looks like a priest. It's wild. He's into that kinky shit. So you can find us on the cram at another fucking horror podcast. Every six episode, which is next week, we do our true listener tales episode where we read your true crazy stories. So if you have one or you just wanna say hi, email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. We are so obsessed with you guys. As always, keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.